Welcome to Rose Tinted, a podcast where we challenge the limits of our nostalgia by re-examining some of our favourite childhood movies. I'm Ollie Chep. And I'm Paddy HK. And this week we are discussing The Fox and the Hound. Yes, hello and welcome to Rose Tinted. Before we get started, I just want to give a bit of background info about this podcast to anyone who may not have heard it before. So, Ollie and I are old friends who decided to make a list of some of our favourite childhood movies so we can revisit them one by one and see if they still hold up to scrutiny. Some loose rules for our selection process, the movies have to bear some kind of significance to our childhood or early adolescence, and we try to only select movies that we have not watched since that time. So with that out of the way, Ollie, why don't you tell us a little bit about The Fox and the Hound? So, The Fox and the Hound is a 1981 Walt Disney Studios movie. I thought it was a lot more recent than that. Mm. I thought it was sort of much more 90s than that. But um, yeah, 1981, it's, it's old, man. Yeah. 12 million budget, returns 63 and a half, and I think it was the, for the time, the most expensive animated film that the studio had made. Really? Yeah, I think so. That genuinely surprises me. I'm sorry, I know we'll get into that, but that <laughs> genuinely really surprises me because it does not seem like it at all when you watch this movie. Yeah, at the time of its release, it was the most expensive animated film produced to date, costing 12 million. Wow. It was actually an interesting time for Walt Disney Studios as well because they all of their old animators were in the basically in the midst of retirement. So a lot of the names that had been animating for a good 20 years or so at the studio were retiring but it also meant that there was some new blood coming in and actually I think Brad Bird mm. um, had a uncredited hand in this movie I'm pretty sure for those of you who don't know Brad Bird is obviously one of the main creators of Pixar movies so yes I think 12 million is generous isn't it yeah definitely but it might be because of the voice acting like we've got some quite good casting here a young Kurt Russell voices <laughs> Copper the Hound I did not recognise <laughs> Kurt Russell's voice no me neither um, he sounds very different but then you have like a lot of old Disney players like I recognise a lot of the voices in this movie so Pat Buttram who plays the old dog in it Chief? Chief there we go yeah so he also voices Napoleon from Aristocats and also the sheriff of nottingham from the walt disney's robin hood and that's where i recognize his voice as i've heard him before yeah and then paul winchell who plays this like dodgy woodpecker type character mm. um, is obviously the voice of tigger from winnie the pooh ah see i thought i recognized him but i just couldn't put my finger on where it was from so that's yeah. really yeah that's really good to know yeah so got some good voice acting in there uh it's directed by ted berman richard rich which is a fantastic name <laughs> and uh art steve and they've all been, you know, a part of some of the Disney classics. So Ted Berman wrote The Rescuers. He wrote Bedknobs and Broomsticks. Mm. Uh, Richard Rich was the assistant director of The Aristocats. Art Stevens, I think, directed The Rescuers. So, you know, it's in safe hands, I think, as far as uh, Walt Disney animation goes. Yeah, for sure. Slightly too safe hands, perhaps, but um, that's something we'll get to a little bit later. Yeah, maybe. Yeah. So do you want to give me your plot synopsis, please? <laughs> yeah. I'm glad we're re readopting synopsis. By the way, that's good. I like that. I think that's the correct term, and that is the hill I will die on. 
<laughs> okay, uh, so this is from the back of the VHS. Orphaned at a young age by hunters, Todd is a domesticated, friendly, and mischievous fox. He soon makes friends with his neighbour, a young bloodhound called Copper, but instincts and social pressures interfere. Can Copper and Todd forget their differences and really be friends forever? Oh, lovely stuff. That's good, right? Yeah, very good. I like how you said friends forever as well, because there's a quote in the movie which I liked that is, uh, forever is a long time, and time has a way of changing things, so it ties quite neatly back into sort of uh, some of the thematic elements in the movie, so well done. Thank you, mate. And my one-line summary, ruthless tale of cruelty that demonstrates how bloodthirsty nature can be. Yeah. Absolutely fair enough. Absolutely. <laughs> it's not quite as bloodthirsty as some other movies that came out in this era. So when I was watching it, I actually kind of wanted them to ramp it up a little bit in yeah. sort of like a Watership Down or Animals of Farthing Wood kind of vein. Well, from what I've read, they wanted that initially. Mm. And then it went through a rewrite, I think. There's a moment, isn't there, where Chief, who's this like old hunting dog, I don't know why or how it sort of came about, but he falls off a train track on a bridge because he nearly gets hit by a train and like hits about four rocks on the way down, lands in a river. Yeah. And I think, because it's based on a book as well, I think in the book, Chief dies. Mm. And I think initially they had written that he dies, but they were like, no, this is meant to be for children. So he just breaks <laughs> his leg, even though that, that would have like killed that dog instantaneously in real life, you know? Well, it's funny you should say that because you were like, for some reason he jumps off a train bridge, but I think the implication in the movie is he gets hit by the fucking train and somehow oh. survives not only that, but also the fall from the bridge. I didn't realise he got hit. Yeah, I think that's what it was implied in the movie. That's what came across to me. So this dog takes an absolute beating. Yeah, yeah. But he's just got a little bandage on his leg. He's fine. He's fine. And also the dog's like 15 years old as well. And it's yeah. just fine. It's just hurt its legs slightly. Yeah, yeah. That fucking thing would have been mush on those rocks. <laughs> You've got copper just like sifting through a pile of entries. Trails, just like, no, why? Looking for the collar. <laughs> the dog tags. Oh, dear. So why did this movie make the list for you, Ollie? It's a strange one. Like, from a modern perspective, it's actually quite an understated Disney movie. Mm. Like, the Disney cycle for everybody is like The Lion King, Cinderella, mm. maybe Snow White, like these ones that go around. And this one's sort of... I don't know, feels like a bit of a left field Disney movie, but it's actually got a huge cult following, I think. Mm -hmm. And everyone I've talked to about it has said that they remember the Fox and the Hound vividly. Mm. I don't really remember too much about it. I just remember being mildly traumatized throughout, but you can pretty much summarize most animated movies of this period with that <laughs> synopsis. Like they are generally traumatic. Yeah. But in terms of what I remember, I don't really remember too much of it. I remember like quite liking the, even though when I was as a kid I wouldn't have called it this but I remember liking the art style of the film generally like these lovely watercolour backdrops and they stuck in my mind before I watched it like if you actually have a look at the poster of the film it looks gaudy and horrible mm. but in the actual film itself it's a lot more the colour tones are a lot softer and it's a lot more pleasing on the eye yeah. and that's mainly what I remember to be honest um, what about yourself? Yeah it was a similar thing really and I'm going to pick up on this a little bit further on in the episode but basically movies of this era are really interesting to me because 
because there are historically sort of three main eras of Disney that we grew up with. There's the Golden Age, which is, you know, the 30s and 40s. So your Snow Whites, your Pinocchios. Dumbo. Dumbo. Yeah, exactly that era. You've got the Renaissance era, which is Lion King, Aladdin, Pocahontas, all of that stuff. And this middle era, this sort of like from uh, the death of Walt Disney himself through to the end of the 80s and the release of The Little Mermaid is often referred to as the Disney Dark Age. So you've got the Golden Age, the Renaissance Age and the Dark Age. And it's referred to that for a variety of reasons that I'll get into a little bit later. But basically what it really speaks to is that a lot of the movies that were released in this era do kind of fall into that semi-left field, not really ones that immediately spring to mind kind of category. So you've got this one, you've got Robin Hood, you've got... Jungle Book, The Aristocats, Oliver and Company, Basil Mouse Detective, you know. And so I actually do think it's a really fascinating era of the Disney Company because I think it was a time when they were really struggling to find their identity in the wake of Walt Disney's death. Yeah. And also, like I said, about the end of an era in terms of the animating team as well, like these old guards sort of retiring and not doing it any longer. Yeah. So it's like a period of mild turmoil, I suppose. There are some obviously some classics in this decade, though, as well. Oh, yeah. You know, things like the Black Cauldron. It's absolutely amazing, but it flies really under the radar in comparison to stuff that comes out in like the early 90s. So you've got Beauty and the Beast in November of 91. That's where it really starts, you know, refinding their their form, I suppose, in terms of the movies. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, the reason this one made the list specifically is because a lot of the Renaissance era films, which I also grew up with, so The Lion King and things like that, I have actually revisited over the years. Um, yeah. And they are much more vivid in my mind. And there's actually a, a few movies from this era that really stuck with me and that I watched a lot as a kid. Uh, there was this one and The Sword in the Stone. They were the two main ones that came to mind immediately. And the reason I wanted to look at this one is because I couldn't remember a whole lot. So I remembered the general idea of the plot. You know, I knew that the fox and the hound become friends, but as they grow up, they realize they're natural enemies and they need to behave accordingly. I also remember that dilemma between what others expected of them and how they actually feel towards each other to be like really heartbreaking. So my main curiosity going into this movie was, will it still have an emotional impact on me? Because I remember being like genuinely quite heartbroken at watching this movie and finding it very dramatic. I also remembered there being a bear at some point but that was it um so yeah that was the main reason i wanted to look at this movie was because it seemed emblematic of an era that doesn't get explored enough and i feel like every other film every other disney offering and i'm sure we will revisit disney at some point but every other disney offering that we could have spoken about seems to have been you know discussed to death yeah we're trying to find a niche here aren't we like it'll be the obvious choice to be like well let's just do lion king it was the same dilemma we had with actually talking about jurassic park mm. do you know what i mean like, should we even bother? Because it's been talked about a lot already. Do we need to really revisit it? Yeah. So finding like a more niche Disney movie, I think is quite fun in itself, you know? Yeah, definitely. Definitely. Well, we've sort of already started touching on our opinions of the movie, but shall we move on to talk about the things we enjoyed in this film? Yeah, let's do it. Okay, Ollie. So what were some of the things you enjoyed in this movie? Uh, well, I sort of alluded to it at the start there. The thing that I remembered mainly was like the art design. 
Because the, the opening five minutes is the title and sort of credit sequence, isn't it? Mm. And it's all overlaid to this lovely sort of watercolour forest. And I just really like the muddier, greener tones of the colour palette in the backgrounds. I really like them. And like in and of themselves, they would be nice paintings. Mm. And I think combined with some really quite nice animation of some of the characters, I think some of the sort of the wider shot animation. So when you see like the fox moving around the landscape, maybe not so much, but Mm. when you get the cuts to close-ups and you see the characters themselves like gesticulating and emoting, the animation's actually quite charming. Yeah. It's that type of animation. It's a bit like you can see the sketch lines in the characters Mm. as they're they're being animated. And I just think that's really lovely. Yeah, for sure. I mean, I generally just love hand-drawn animation. And I think there were points in this movie where I think it could have been executed a little bit more effectively. I feel like there were some points where this movie certainly was cutting corners. But like generally speaking, the animation, even if it's a bit rough around the edges at times and... I think lacks the artistic depth of the golden era and the polish mm. of the renaissance era. It still has charm to it. It has that storybook yeah. kind of feel to it. And I do actually think that one of the most effective moments of animation in the movie is in that intro credit sequence, like you said, and that was very reminiscent of Bambi to me. Yeah. And in my mind, for better or for worse, I kept comparing this movie to Bambi. Mm-hmm. And that opening credit sequence is yeah, like you said, this beautiful hand-painted scenery. And it's also a really good example of multiplane animation, which was a technique that Bambi used in spades. Uh, this movie doesn't use it that much, which is a shame, but it does it really nicely in the intro. And for those that don't know, multiplane animation was a technique during the classic Disney animation period where you'd have multiple panes of glass that had different aspects of the artwork on it. And the panes of glass would move at different speeds in front of a camera. And that would then give the illusion of movement and depth you know Mm -hmm. so Mm -hmm. obviously if the camera was moving across a landscape uh, the glass pane in the foreground would move quicker than the glass panes in the background which would move slower and that creates this illusion of depth and um, films like Bambi use that to its absolute pinnacle and the intro sequence to this movie was a good example of it as well, I thought, when it's just sort of like moving through the leaves of the forest and it's all dark and green, like you say. I've always found what's really charming with the uh, hand-drawn animations is that you can figure out what shit's going to move around in the frame before it moves around because mm. it's a slightly different colour. Like, it's yeah. a slightly richer colour than the rest of the frame, so you can sort of tell that stuff is going to move in the frame depending on what colour it is. Mm. So one of the examples is when Todd the fox is climbing up a cliff Cliff, mm. And you can see there's certain rocks on the cliff that's been drawn in that are clearly going to move when he touches them, but you can see it before it happens because they're a different colour. And it's just like little human touches like that that I really love. And I actually think that that has more or less been lost in the more recent Disney animated films that I've seen. Like, they're still beautiful, but they lack that authenticity, I think. Yeah, I, I think I would agree with you there. Um, I also wanted to pick up a little bit on the voice acting in this movie. Mm-hmm. I had issues with the sound design at points and the production of the voices yeah really really poorly recorded yeah yeah and we'll get to that but you can't take away from the quality of some of the performances so i thought in particular the voice acting of the older woman who adopts todd yeah she was really well performed she seemed to suit her 
character very well, really brought her to life. I loved Baby Copper's voice actor as well. It was just this adorable yeah. child performance and it just made me smile whenever Copper was a puppy and was talking. I just really enjoyed that. And I also really enjoyed the farmer and chief's voice actors. They did a great job of establishing their characters yeah. as these kind of like downtrodden, rural characters. Yeah, so I thought the voice acting on the whole was really strong. Yeah, I completely agree. And just some like reasonably nice lines of dialogue as well. Like, although they are terribly recorded, like the characters talk to each other with a with a genuine emotion. And that mm. is, you know, we were just talking about this before we hit record, but we had completely forgotten that we have actually looked at an animated movie before this one. I thought this was the first one we looked at. And <laughs> we looked at the Pokemon movie, right? Which is, how much was the Pokemon movie? Was it something like 30 odd million? So, yeah. you know, twice the amount this cost. And it's just shit in comparison, yes. isn't it? In terms yeah. of the voice acting, in terms of the dialogue, in terms of the animation. Pokemon's more like a 90-minute collection of drawings with some, like, nonsensical noise being played over the top of it. <laughs> yeah. Whereas with this one, you really get the sense that, even though it's badly recorded, that they're attempting to put humanity and sympathy into the dialogue between the characters. And I liked it. And actually, you know, I've had a number of films to date where I've just absolutely railed on child actors, mm. and particularly child voice actors. But these two in this one, I think, were fantastic. Yeah, absolutely. And in particular, Copper, I thought they absolutely he nailed yeah. the casting of that character. Well, you know who that you know whose voice that is, don't you? Who? That's Corey Feldman, the young copper. No way. Yeah, Corey Feldman of Gremlins and the Goonies. I didn't check out the cast at all before watching this movie. I just kind of went in. Um, but yeah, I think that does generally speak to the effective characterization in the movie across the board. It's not just the main characters as well. I actually really enjoyed some of the tertiary characters. So two of my favorites being I really like the little caterpillar character who I don't even think has a single word of dialogue in the movie. Sc- Squeaks. It's called Squeaks for good reason. Yeah, yeah, yeah. When you first see him, it's like these birds are trying to hunt him and they're looking through the hole in this tree and you just see him just chilling in his little caterpillar pad on like a leaf or something (laughs) like it's a hammock. And I thought like they did a lot with that character, even though he wasn't actually speaking. He was very, he had a lot of personality. He had a lot of character. I also really loved the grumpy badger. (laughs) Yeah. There's a whole host of forest creatures, isn't there? And I just loved the grumpy badger and particularly the way he was animated. He's like really spiky and he looks like he's got like overgrown old man eye brows and it's sort of just incorporated into his fur. So yeah, they put a lot of effort into actually making the characters feel like they had personalities, which isn't always the case. Yeah, exactly. And I mean, it's part of the Disney formula, isn't it? Like going back to Squeaks the Caterpillar is that you you sort of divert away from the main narrative, which more often than not is like revolved around a quite a heady conflict of some mm. kind. Yeah. And you divert away from that drama momentarily with some comic relief with these almost like vaudevillian sort of theatrical little creatures that yeah. don't really say anything, but they gesticulate and they make funny noises. Is the little bird from Pocahontas, for example, yeah. I think is a really good version of that. And Squeaks the Caterpillar is Fox and the Hound's diversion, I suppose. Because, mm. like, you know, when there's a heavy bit of conflict in this movie, we cut away and we go back to the two birds trying to catch the caterpillar. Yeah, it adds a bit of relief. A little bit of light relief for the otherwise quite ruthless narrative of this movie. <laughs> yeah. You know, this falls into the category again of movies that we watch that start with a parent dying. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And that was. <laughs> That was like where my main point of comparison with Bambi was. Yeah. 
exactly. The mother of the fox gets killed off screen. All you hear is a shot ring out and you see like birds flying around everywhere. I think you actually hear two shots. So the implication is it's been maimed to begin <laughs> with and then the guy just walks up to it and finishes it off at close range. Yeah, yeah. That's dark. That's fucking dark, dude. (laughs) But um, I think we are touching upon another thing that I quite enjoyed in this movie, which was it did have some pretty effective moments of drama on occasion, because like you said, there is this heady conflict at the centre of the movie. So any time this conflict between Copper and Todd is explored, so this whole idea is that they're friends when they're puppies, basically, but they can't be friends as they grow older because Copper's a hunting dog and Todd's a fox and they're just like natural enemies, basically. Yeah. And the chat between between Copper and Todd, where Copper tells Todd they can't be friends, is still really affecting. He says, like, I'll let you go this one time. And that conflict between his sense of purpose and belonging and the love he has for Todd is actually pretty tragic. And I think any time the movie explored that, it still managed to pluck on the old heartstrings a little bit. Yeah, and I think adding to that is the um, really beautifully written non-diegetic score. Mm. I think the, and this will come out of the bad section, the actual musical numbers that are part of the world of the film are fucking terrible. Oh yeah, they suck. But the but the non-diegetic score is fabulous mm. and really lovely. Like, it captures sort of like rural, rust belt type bluesy country mm. music do you know what i mean but also yeah. it's all it's like played with an orchestra mm. and it's just really nice like i remember i while i was watching it i was sort of like getting really into the spirit of the music and i think it adds to the emotional impact of some of the conflicts in the film because they are like quite hard hitting aren't they really yeah definitely and there were moments with the soundtrack that i really enjoyed as well but like you said the actual musical numbers they're shit they just made no impression on me whatsoever so should we talk about the things we maybe enjoyed a little bit less in this movie yeah let's do that let's do it hey i think i got an idea okay well now you know what to do Yeah, leave it to me, leave it to me. Okay, Ollie, so we've sort of touched on this already, but um, we did mention that the original songs in this movie basically suck. So why don't you talk to me a little bit about that? What is it about the songs that you didn't like? They're just really bad. The problem with them, I found, is that they come out of complete left field. Mm. Like, there seems to be like a line of dialogue that happens and then out of nowhere an entire song sort of forms. With more modern Disney, certainly, they're much more integrated into the narrative. And actually, you know, it says a lot about the musical talents in the Disney studio at the moment because when those films are released, their soundtracks are number one for Mm -hmm. months Mm -hmm. because the Mm -hmm. song are actually really well written and are integral to the the film's overall themes whereas these ones tended just to be really sort of I don't know they're really jarring and I think the <laughs> maybe the reason they're so bad is because the people singing them cannot sing yeah the poor woman who plays big mama the owl she is not a singer is she she basically just crucifies these poor songs and it's just shit really it's interesting as well because i think there seems to be a hesitancy on the part of the movie to launch into like a full musical number which is sort of like that sounds counterintuitive because you'd think that just going full you know lion king dancing zebras would be more jarring if anything but if you're gonna do a musical number at least commit to it but a lot of the time 
time, the songs seem to just form out of dialogue that the characters are speaking. Yeah. Which, if it was pulled off well enough, could have been quite effective, but it just means that the songs aren't well integrated into the narrative and they're really not memorable. Well, yeah, they're not memorable. It's quarter past seven now we're recording. I watched this film at about four o'clock this afternoon. Hmm. I could not tell you a single line from any of the songs in this movie. I can tell you one, but that's just because I wrote it down to make the <laughs> point that I'm about to make. But as far as original music goes, The Best of Friends, which is the title of one of the songs I imagine because that was the main line in it, The Best of Friends is definitely a fucking dud. And there's a reason I don't remember this song. Like you rightfully said right now, I've got it written down. I couldn't tell you how the melody goes. I couldn't tell you no. how the rest of the lyrics go. And it feels like the music in this movie, like you said, the soundtrack is lovely, but the original songs, it's almost like they were like an afterthought. Yeah. Like we can't release a Disney movie without an original song and it does really detract from the narrative. Give it credit where it's due. The only time I thought it was effective was when the old lady is giving Todd away. She's setting Todd free into the forest. Yeah, but that's not even a song, is it? She almost starts it like a poem. Like, she's just reading, yeah. which was really effective. Mm. And yeah, I'd agree with you. That's a, that's a nice moment. But I, I would not have been upset if there were no musical numbers in this, in this movie. I think it could have probably got away with not having any. It didn't need them. No, it didn't need them. It didn't need them. That felt like a boardroom decision. Yeah. We're Walt Disney Studios. We need to have songs in our movies. Otherwise, our IP is lost. Yes. Whereas actually, I think they probably could have got away with just not having any of the shit songs in there. Yeah, definitely. Um, I think it makes sense for us to move on from this point then to discuss the sound design of the movie, which we sort of touched upon in the last section, but specifically the production on the voice acting and the production on the voice recording. It really doesn't sound like a lot of effort has been made to integrate the voices into their environment. At times, you can almost hear the room they were recorded in. Mm. They have like a somewhat tinny, reverby quality. And what's more, some have entirely different reverbs on them, which would indicate that they're being recorded at different times and perhaps in different places. And the result is you've got two characters having a conversation in the same place directly next to each other, but they sound like they're in completely <laughs> separate locations. It's really, really uncanny. It just takes you out of the world of the movie a bit. Yeah, when I started watching it today, I was like, Jesus, how old is this film? Because mm. it sounds like it's, you know, on the cusp of the sound film. Do you know <laughs> yeah. what I mean? Like 1920. Like, when does sound come into cinema? 1928 yeah, or something? Yeah. <laughs> and then Walt Disney Studios <laughs> are like, you know what, guys? I think it's time we made a talkie. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, and I, yeah, I, I completely agree with you. It all felt just a bit rushed in places. Yeah. Like, it just felt like it's been rushed out last minute and they've just sort of cut loads of corners, mm. which is really odd considering that it costs 12 million to make. Yes, it does feel rushed in a lot of places and it's not just the sound design. Um, it's in the animation and the character models as well. And I know we sort of talked about some of the positive aspects of the animation. It's very charming. You know, there's the watercolour elements. It's all hand-drawn and that's lovely. But there are a lot of shortcuts being taken in that aspect of the movie as well, I think. Yeah. So in particular, even though the backgrounds themselves look lovely, there is a real issue in this movie of integrating the moving characters into the backgrounds. And there's just moments where, for example, they're just running across like this grass and nothing is happening. They're having zero... (laughs) 
impact on their environment. No leaves are being kicked up, no dust, no nothing. And there's just a lot of issues like that throughout the movie. Everything's flat. There's just no depth. It's like you've got the characters yeah. existing on one plane, the backgrounds existing on another plane, and they're just never integrated with each other. Yeah, exactly. Which is a real shame, again, just to reiterate, because it's actually those painted backdrops are lovely. It's just a shame they, they haven't been able to integrate them together more effectively. Yeah. And like, you know, I have no grounds to suggest that there was minimum effort taken with this film, but it just has the appearance of a rush job. But not in the same cynical way that the Pokemon movie looks like it's low effort. No. Like, the way we discuss that is like, they've clearly been like, it doesn't matter how shit we make this look, we're going to make money anyway. Whereas this one maybe seems like... It's a, a very prestigious movie studio in transition. You've got a lot of old, established artists that are leaving the company and new ones coming through. So it just feels like it's a bit of a victim of its own circumstance in that it just looks chaotic and feels unfinished. And it's probably the state of the studio at the time that it was made. Yeah, it feels like a compromise. Yeah. And this idea of it feeling rushed, I think can also apply to the key relationships in the movie. So I mentioned earlier that there are some effective moments of drama peppered throughout the movie. You know, you've got everything with uh, Copper and Todd. You've got the moment where the old lady has to set Todd free, where Chief nearly dies. These are effective dramatic moments, but I think there is not enough focus on the key relationships in the movie to increase those dramatic stakes. So if you look at Copper and Todd, for example, like the bulk of their friendship is established over the course of a montage. It's like a montage, a music montage where they're playing hide and seek. And I think that reduces the dramatic impact of their falling out. It would have been nice to see these characters interact a little bit more and in some actual situations. So maybe have them thrown into a situation with high stakes that they can bond over. Yeah. You know, similar to like Simba and Nala in The Lion King. They go to the elephant graveyard and they risk their lives and then they bond through shared trauma. And that then, you know, makes you believe in their friendship a bit more. Yeah. It's the same with the chief thing though, isn't it? Like the motivation for Copper and the and the hunter to have this quite sinister vendetta against one particular young fox mm. um, is because Chief's back leg got broken when it, you know, when he miraculously survived the 150 foot drop into shallow water after being hit by a train. <laughs> like, it, it would make a lot more sense as well, like, because he's not a particularly sympathetic character, is old Chief. So it would make more sense. I mean, we're sort of getting into changes here, but I guess we can just discuss these together. But, like, it would make more sense, wouldn't it, if Chief was a really sympathetic character that had won Copper over and he was actually mm. really lovely. And then it's perceived by Copper and the Hunter that Todd was the reason for Chief's death. But really, Chief's just like a, a rusty old gimmer who's not very nice. Yeah. And... He makes the mistake of standing in the way of a fucking train and he falls off the cliff and he doesn't die. Mm. And that's the motivation for the characters to have their revenge. And it's just sort of a little bit thin, isn't it? It's a bit tenuous. Yeah, it is. And I think the same could be said of the old lady and Todd as well. And I think they have, you know, the makings of a really beautiful relationship. And their goodbye is quite affecting. Yeah. But again, I couldn't help but compare it in my head to Hoggett and Babe. Any excuse to bring Babe up, mate. Any excuse <laughs> to talk about the masterpiece of the 20th century. But um, like, but you think about Hoggett and Babe, right? That you spend time with these characters and you understand why they have such a bond with each other. Yeah. You know, there's that point where Babe nearly dies and Hoggett has to go and rescue him and then dances for him in... The most moving scene in probably cinematic history. <laughs> and <laughs> um, but 
again, even though I do believe in their relationship, not enough time is spent establishing it and making you feel like it's really special. And like you said, we are touching on changes and we'll move into that in just a second. But before we do, is there anything else you wanted to bring up before we go into that section? Yeah, I think it sort of ties into the, like, I don't know, what was your what was your reading of the overall sort of moral of the story? Because for me, it was sort of like, this should be a narrative about two very different characters overcoming those differences mm. to remain friends. So the message being, it doesn't matter what your upbringing is, it's about your behaviour to other people that matters. Mm. But this, it sort of goes that distance, but doesn't quite get there. I don't know what you thought the moral message was of this film. So I feel like the moral message is sort of wrapped up in the, it's wrapped up in the idea of mourning for how things used to be, mourning the friends you used to have, mourning the way your life was when you were children. And then you grow to a point where you come into conflict with maybe people from your past. And then I feel like the ultimate message of the movie is you can still be different you can still live these different lives but you can coexist you can make peace with that side of yourself yeah i get what you mean there doesn't seem to be a really strong or coherent message that the movie ends on but i do think it's about acknowledging the differences between you acknowledging the different ways in which you grow as people and making your peace with that and being like you know what it's okay if we're not friends with all the people that we went to school with or we're not friends with the people we grew up with you know you just hope they're doing well they hope we're doing well and that's sort of what I got out of it I may be massively projecting onto it um, but like (laughs) but um, that is what I got out of it and I thought that was a quite that was quite a sweet message actually but I do agree if you're gonna have this movie about difference and having two people who are supposedly natural enemies and trying to overcome that difference I think they could have maybe concluded that with a little bit more conviction like you say yeah you want them to overcome the difference because it's implied throughout the film that that is what should happen Mm. because like todd doesn't do any of the stuff that makes copper hate him Mm. like you know it's just coincidence and circumstance so Mm. the implication that the film's giving is that you know they don't like each other because they've been taught by society that they're not allowed to like each other. Mm. But there doesn't seem to be any... Like, the resolution to this story is Copper falls asleep and he remembers fondly back on a time when they were friends Mm. as Todd sort of looks down from his, you know, forest dwelling or whatever. Mm. But really what should be happening at the end is they should be curled up together or, you know, living... They should be friendly neighbours and they should, you know, have their own children that are interacting in an integrated way together. Like, that is the logic resolution of that sort of moral message and I don't think it really comes across very well. I couldn't help but really read it as like a comment on race. Right, okay. And how overcoming difference is important. And me reading it in that way to have no actual resolution to that difference, I thought was actually quite regressive. Yeah, I get what you're saying. It's almost like uh, there's an absolutist vein that runs through the movie, right? It's kind of like, well, I'm this way, you're that way, you know? You li- you live over there. Yeah, and it's, and it's and nothing changes, and nothing changes. And it's just sort of like, oh, but I can't do anything about it because... Yeah, we'll be all right if we segregate ourselves. <laughs> Essentially, I, that's what, I was like, oh, so they're just going to maintain their distance now? Like, you can't get rid of difference. I don't know, it was, I found it quite tricky. Yeah, exactly. And to be fair, the idea that you can't overcome difference, that's a complex message that can be explained 
explored in numerous ways, which would also be interesting because then you're getting into the idea of privilege and, and things like that. And I think those are mm. worthy topics of examination. But yeah, like you said, with a Disney movie, with this sort of movie, they're fables, you know, and a fable has to have a really strong moral for you to latch onto. And this movie just seems to be lacking that somewhat which is a shame because actually my memory of it was that it did have quite a strong message to it yeah before i watched it i was like i'm going to be taught like a nice lesson here about overcoming difference because of the title of the film is sort of implies it and it doesn't quite get there no no i don't think so either but if you've got nothing else shall we move on to discuss the changes we'd make to this movie yes i think so Okay, so gone through the good and the bad. How would you change this movie for the better, given the opportunity? Okay, well, I think I'm going to assume going into this that the corners being cut are the same. You know, whatever constraints were on the movie that sort of made the sound design a bit off and the animation a little bit off at times is all the same. So I'm just going to look at it from a structural point of view. Mm -hmm. I think the main change I would make would be bin the romance between (laughs) Todd and Vixie. Comes out of absolutely nowhere, that, doesn't it? Comes out of nowhere doesn't need to be in the movie and the thing is i feel like we shit on romance subplots in movies a lot and i want to make it clear i don't have anything against them inherently but the reason i think this movie could do without it is because it would simply allow for more time to be given to the relationships i was talking about earlier because they devote a good chunk of time to that romance subplot yeah and if you just take that away what it's like 10 15 minutes that just gives you a little bit of extra time to play with to devote to the relationship between copper and todd with todd and uh, the older lady and with copper and chief and the hunter yeah so that would be the main change i'd make bin the romance and just spend a bit more time establishing those relationships to increase the dramatic stakes of the movie um what about you yeah i mean i agree with those points and i think as well like sort of tying into that is just up the stakes a little bit Mm. so if you get rid of that love interest then you have an opportunity to explore in a little bit more detail copper and chief's relationship Mm because i think it's sort of suggested in the film that it's chief and copper becoming friends that turns copper into the into the hunter Mm. If you made Chief a little bit more sympathetic and gave them a little bit more time to explore their relationship, that would add weight to when he is hit by the train. And I say up the stakes, just kill that dog off, man. Like yeah, that, need, yeah. that really needs to happen because they react really vitriolically towards Todd after that point, the hunter and copper. But it's only because Chief's fallen down a cliff. Like if he had died and we'd had time with the character to know that he's actually really sympathetic, you would sort of understand why they're behaving in that way. But you just don't. Mm. Like, I think as well, just like having a random bear attack at the end doesn't really constitute for me like a climax to your film. I think there needed to be a more integrated sort of powerful moment where they have to work together to overcome something. And I don't think just having a random bear attack thrown in at the end is a is a good way of doing it. Yeah, I think I agree. I think I agree. Well, um, I think that just about does it. So there's only one more question to ask you, Ollie. Do you need rose-tinted specs to enjoy this movie or do you think it holds up on its own merit oh man it's a tough one isn't it it is uh i'm gonna say that you do need nostalgia Mm -hmm. the reason why i think that is because modern disney's and you know the disney's of the early 90s they're just much better yeah in nearly every single way and i think that you really do need to hold on to the fondness 
that you've got of this movie from when you were a kid to fully enjoy it. It's a rough cut, isn't it, this film? Yeah. And I think you can get over those if you've got nostalgia for it. So I think that you do need rose-tinted goggles. Okay, yeah. Um, I think I would fully agree with you, to be honest with you. I found it really challenging to answer that question when I was going over it in my mind before hitting the record button. But now that we've had this conversation, I'm not trying to damn the movie too much. I don't think it's necessarily a bad movie. I think you could still watch this movie and have a decent time. But the main question I was trying to answer going into this movie is, will I find it as emotionally hard-hitting as when I was younger, you know? And obviously when you're a kid, things affect you a lot more. You're a lot more emotionally susceptible to things like this. But that was the gauge that I was using. How affected will I be by the drama of this movie? And as we've discussed, I just think the stakes weren't quite high enough. Everything did feel a little bit rushed and there were too many moments in the movie that took me out of it. And yeah, like you said, when you compare it to not only the movies that came after it, but the movies that came before it, you know, I watched Bambi really recently. Mm. That is a beautiful movie. I I think if you've not seen Bambi recently, dude, I would highly recommend just sticking it on. Okay. And uh, this movie didn't do itself any favours by seemingly attempting to hold a candle to movies like that during its runtime. I think that's the main problem with this film is that it doesn't actually really do anything particularly new. Yes. In comparison to other Disney movies of its own era and the ones before and since. And you can find a lot better examples of this type of film from Disney that, yeah, are just a lot more polished and a lot more interesting just generally to look at and engage with. Yeah. Um, So it's sort of a victim of its own environment, I think. And that is why you need nostalgia for it. Yeah, and this will not be the last time that we watch a Disney movie. We have quite a few on the list, some lesser-known cuts, which I'm looking forward to exploring. Hmm. We'll probably do some more well-known stuff as well. But yeah, I think we'll leave it there for a little while. Yes. But that just about does it. So before we go, as always, I need to say thank you to Dilettante for letting us use their song My Dress as our theme tune. You can check them out at Dilettante Songs online. Please do go listen to their music. It's fantastic. But yeah, in the meantime, I have been Paddy. And I've been Ollie. And we have been Rose Tinted. Thank you very much for listening and we will see you all next time. Before you go, don't forget to rate and subscribe to us on your preferred podcast platform. Remember, you can also follow us on Instagram at Rose Tinted Movies. Thanks again for listening.